Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about um, the technology and regulatory trends that are impacting the future of communications and influence with a special focus on what it takes to break through in the communications and content world, being how crowded of an ecosystem it is, especially with elite and niche audiences. Um, so we're really lucky today because we have uh, one of our investors, one of our longtime investors, uh, at Key Street Capital, Roy Schwartz, who's also the one of the co-founders of Axios and, and the founder CEO of Axios HQ, as well as one of our founders, Matt Calamans, who's the CEO and founder of Applecart. Um, and so before we kick it off, I guess I'll have both of you just introduce yourself quickly and share a little bit about your background. Um, so why don't we start with you, Roy, and then Matt? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, love K Street, love what we've been doing. Uh, I was there very early on when we were setting it up, so it's great to see what it's turned into. And now it's a professionally run organization uh, thanks to you, so that's, that's great. Um, yeah, so I am now the CEO of Axios HQ, which is a SaaS company. And so we are very focused on the future of communication. We have generative AI, we have AI, we have assisted writing, and we are helping um, companies large and small figure out how to communicate effectively and efficiently to their both employees and their uh, stakeholders. Uh, and I would say stakeholders is, you know, it could be their board, it could be their clients, um, but what's happening right now is communication is very ineffective and so uh, we're all overwhelmed and so we are searching for ways in which we can break through that noise so uh, i'm looking forward to the conversation thanks roy and roy you, you've been i think you've been an investor with case for like 10 years right yeah yeah since the yeah, launch since i was actually beginning. the founding founding group yeah 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 very cool thanks matt do you want to introduce yourself Sure. Um, thanks, Paige and, and Roy. It's good to be with everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, Matt Kalman's co-founder, co-CEO of, of Applecart. Uh, so Applecart's a marketing technology company uh, in New York. And what we specialize in is helping um, you know, primarily Fortune 2000 companies, major trade associations and nonprofits in situations where Really, their goal is to generate visibility around hard to reach decision makers. You know, there are a lot of tools for reaching very broad audiences of consumers. And the hole we try to fill is uh, what do you do when your objective is to generate visibility with somebody like the CEO of Goldman Sachs or a senator or someone that's otherwise very hard to reach through sort of traditional uh, communication uh, channels. And so we've been around for uh, about 10 years, about 100 people here in New York, uh, growth stage startup, and um, uh, very glad to be a, a part of K Street as well. Yeah, Matt, thanks. I just want to first congratulate you on your recent close of your, your $20 million Series B, which is incredible given the, the, the funding environment, and, and, and just congrats. And I would love to hear a little bit more about um, maybe if you can talk about why you decided to build this company, what was the genesis of it, and wh where you're going now, now that you've closed that raise, it was the next, the, the future of Applecart. Yeah, no, I mean, we've, we've had a pretty, uh, I would say even maybe unconventional startup journey. So we were a dorm room startup originally at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and we started a pretty unconventional way for a, a startup company. We didn't raise any capital to start. We were, we were bootstrapped for the first number of years. Uh, and we really built um, this technology originally based off of a, an academic paper that we read um, at Yale. Um, uh, that was written at Yale in the early 2000s, where 
basically showed that most forms of marketing are not terribly effective, but one that was extremely effective was, uh, you know, types of marketing that leverage social pressure. People are really influenced by their peer set. And so we looked to build a platform that could map who that peer set was for uh, any given individual. And when we first got started, we were using that originally in a, in a political campaign context to use that data to help motivate people to turn out and vote and, and do things along those lines. Uh, and frankly, it was a lot of CEOs of large companies that we met through uh, a lot of the political work we did where they were donors who pointed out to us that that same data could be extremely valuable in a commercial context where, you know, if you're a CEO of a large company, most of the brand challenges you're concerned with pertain to very small numbers of people that can have outsized impact on your brand, whether those are analysts on Wall Street, policymakers, employees to Roy's point, et cetera. Uh, and they sort of observed that for a lot of those people, the, the most effective way to uh, influence them, generate visibility around them is not by running an ad that reaches them and says, you know, sign up and put your email address in, but is uh, through what they hear about a brand from people they trust, their, their friends, their colleagues, their peers, et cetera. And so, um, you know, that, that was really how we discovered there was a, a pretty big opportunity to build a platform that enabled brands uh, to reach decision makers in a way that mirrors how they make uh, decisions rather than applying the same sort of direct response consumer tools that were built for, you know, big consumer brands like Procter and Gamble to to reach the masses, and then trying to sort of fit those on top of these sorts of different audiences that are that are hard to reach. And so, um, you know, re really, that's what we've been trying to pursue is is being the, uh, the the marketing technology that's built for reaching those sorts of uh, elite stakeholders rather than um, you know, sort of using some of the more traditional consumer tools and, and just trying to apply them to those uh, elite uh, marketing use cases. That's great. And you've been doing it for 10 years and you guys have had a ton of success and you've got incredible an incredible list of clients that have worked with you for a long time and, and continue to do so. And I know there's tons of new ones as well, but I'm just curious how you're viewing, you know, how it's kind of evolved over time or how you're seeing it evolve in the future, just in the in the in the market that you're in. Yeah, well, I mean, and, you know, I would imagine Roy could probably speak to this as well from his experience. But, the, you know, the fun thing about starting a, a startup is it, is it usually doesn't end where it begins. Uh, and you end up finding a lot of other use cases for what you built when you initially started. So when we first started, we saw a very sort of niche application of the technology that we built to reaching policymakers and other people that were sort of influential in a, a you know, government relations or public affairs context. And then over time, what we found was that, um, you know, the, the challenge of how do you generate visibility around, manage your brand with hard to reach stakeholders isn't just unique to government affairs and public affairs. It, it applies to basically every department of a company. You know, chief people officers want to reach their employees. Uh, chief revenue officers want to reach very small numbers of decision makers for their clients. Heads of investor relations want to reach institutional investors and, and major uh, analysts on the on the street. And uh, they all um, sort, of, sort of lack tools for very effectively generating visibility around those sorts of people because, you know, that wasn't really what the, the Facebooks of the world were designed for when they were, when they were built. And so a lot of the marketing technology sort of leaves a gap there. And so we think there's, you know, an ability to start to be the, the platform that uh, each of those C-suite executives use for reaching those stakeholders, you know, in, in these sort of large enterprises and over time make those tools available to uh, smaller organizations that have the same sort of desire to reach these types of stakeholders. Great. 
Thanks, Matt. And Roy, I'd love to just briefly talk a little bit about your experience at Axios and, and selling Axios to Cox, which is just incredible. Congratulations on that. And I think that was the end of last year or the beginning of this year? It was uh, uh, August, September of last year. Yeah. 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 Um, so huge congratulations there. And, and on kicking off, it's amazing to see you just jump right into another startup immediately and be so excited about spinning it off and digging in on it. And so I'd love to learn a little bit more and share with our audience about Axios HQ and, and why you decided to do that. And I'll stop there. Maybe we'll yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I think it connects a little bit to, to what we just heard from, from Applecart, which is um, when we started Axios, we had a very specific idea, right, which was in the news and information space, there was a lot of inefficiency, um, and we felt like we could change a format in terms of how news and information was delivered, and that if we were efficient and effective in terms of um, our audience's time that we would break through. And Axios was successful in doing that, right? We reached very difficult to reach audiences um, with news and information that they need to do their jobs. Um, we specialize in everything from policymakers to tech leaders to business leaders. And um, the Axios news product was extremely effective and, and, and did very well. And, you know, six years in, um, Cox, who was an investor, said, hey, we would we would love to acquire this company. As part of that acquisition, we wanted to spin off a startup that had started working within Axios, which was uh, one of those, you know, unknown use cases. But, you know, as we had figured out this concept of smart brevity, how to deliver news information in the most efficient way, out of that um, came um, a philosophy, a format, a, a concept around how you write uh, information in order for it to be efficient. And companies almost immediately started reaching out and saying, hey, we love Axios, we love the newsletters, we love the format. How can we do that for internal communication? We're trying to reach our employees. They're having the same problem, right? They're overwhelmed with information. They've got too many emails coming in, too many text messages and Slack messages. And how do we break through? Same problem, different different place, different different use case. Um, but but just like uh, you heard earlier, we took what we learned from the media company and said, okay, we can use this in a SaaS platform. And so in the last couple of years, I've spent my time building out that as a separate company, a separate team, um, but utilizing what we learned from the media side. And so now we have a complete solution. Um, it's a SaaS-based solution. We work with 500 companies. Um, from really, really big companies all the way down to small associations. But we primarily help them with internal communications, right? We are there to help them um, be able to reach their employees on must-have issues. So this isn't replacing, you know, every email that you send. The idea is that when you're doing essential communications, one-to-many communications, that you format it differently, you spend a little bit more time putting it together. But the outcome on the other end is much more engagement, much more interest and less time having to be spent by your employees trying to get caught up on essential information. And you can have the best strategy, you can have the, the, the best product, but if you can't communicate that to your employees, you're dead in the water. And so what we found, especially during remote work, is that there is a massive, massive tailwind where companies really need to communicate effectively and they just don't know how to do it. Yeah. And also congrats on, I think just closing, it was like, what, two weeks ago, the, the yeah. Series A, $20 million Series A. 
Yes, that's right. So that's incredible. Uh, and I, I'm curious if you, I mean, since that was so, so recent, given everything that's gone, uh, you know, gone on in the venture ecosystem recently, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, how did you do that? And what, what takeaways would you share with the audience of the other founders out there that are trying to raise money right now? Yeah, it's definitely, um, for founders that are trying to raise right now, it's going to take a lot longer than it used to take. Um, the the issue you've got is uh, there's a lot more caution, right? If you're a venture capitalist and you invested in the last couple of years, you've put a lot of money to work and, you know, a lot of those valuations have gone down. And so you're looking at that going, hmm, you know, I, I should probably, you know, be a little bit more careful. The other thing is, is that there's a lot of turnover within these firms. So people who may have invested and realized that their book of business is upside down, there's just less people able at those firms to do the work. Um, and if you've got portfolio companies that are running out of cash, your primary focus is going to be, okay, well, I've got to make sure I protect my portfolio. You know, how do I help them make sure that they have enough money? So if you've not raised before or you don't have institutional investors, it is going to take you a lot longer to raise money. And it's probably going to come at a valuation that was less than it would have been a year or two years ago. One could argue that the valuations from a year and two years ago were uh, overinflated. Anyway, uh, I think we got a, a, a fair valuation. Uh, I think we're in a, in a, in a good spot. Um, and we were very fortunate because we had investors that knew who we were, right? They were investors that had invested in Axios Media, had done very well from that investment. They knew me. They knew my team. Um, they knew the technology. And so we weren't quite as caught up in the market effect uh, that I think you know other people will find. So my advice to founders who are uh, looking to raise money is try and make sure you have as much runway as possible. If you have a year, this is the time to start. Uh, if you have six months, you should have started six months ago, but you better start right now. Um, and it will, it will take longer. Don't get frustrated. You're always going to hear no. You could have the greatest idea on earth. Um, I've I've had uh, two successful exits, right? Politico sold for a billion, and and Axios sold for half a billion, and people still said no. So you know it's uh, you know it, it's 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 tough out there, right? You got to find the right type of investor. You got to meet their portfolio. You got to meet the right stage of company. There's all these things that have to fit in order for it to be the right investment. And so don't let that you know um, get you down. You just got to keep trying. And last question about your fundraiser, and then we can move on. But I'm I'm curious if there were any, was there anything interesting about the way the valuation was der derived, or the terms of the valuation, uh, terms of the investment that were different or unique? You feel like in this environment, closing around two two months, two weeks ago versus you know the last few yeah. years. No, um, again, I think because we had former investors from Axios Media, we had a very you know clean term sheet, no unusual terms. Um, and I think the valuation that we got was was fair. It was not an overinflated valuation from maybe a year or two years ago, um, but it, it lines up with what SaaS companies have historically gotten, uh, which, which is what I was looking for. Um, and so, but I would say that that is probably different for people who don't have investors that know them and know them well and have a history you know, you probably are going to get a, you know, below standard market valuation right now. And that's okay. You, your, your only job right now is to make it through the next, you know, couple of years. 
and come out the other end. And uh, it's okay to take a little bit of a hit now because the next time you raise, you'll be healthier. You, maybe you make it up there. Yeah. I, I also think it's worth just saying to any of the founders that are listening, these valuations that might seem way lower now are really not that low. They're actually probably more like normal. And yeah. it's, it's a lot easier for a founder to win at, if you start at a lower point, right? Your expectations for growth are going to be less and it's going to be a lot easier to hit them and succeed in the long run. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's such a bad thing. Um, but uh uh, anyway, I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about, Roy, why did you decide to switch from, or maybe this had nothing to do with your decision, to switch from sort of a media company to more of a SaaS, really a software tech company, um, if there were it, things intrinsic to that business model that, made, that sent you sort of down that direction and got you excited about it, or if it was more related to the actual vision of that, that new company or, or some other thing? Yeah, there were a few things that came together. So I'd say first and foremost, we had lightning in a bottle, right? We had a product that started moving very quickly. So we've had 300% growth for the last couple of years. And so it's it's really taken off. So we have 500 clients, um, 7 million in ARR, and it's, you know, we only had the software around for, for two years. So it really moved very quickly. And so I got very excited about the product market fit and the, the, the capabilities uh, that we have there. The other thing was generative AI. So we, we started with our own AI, and that I thought was extremely, uh, you know, uh, really good technology. Um, helped you write in smart brevity, helped you format things correctly from day one. But when you added what um, generative AI is capable of doing, we've made advances in the last, I would say, quarter that otherwise would have taken a year. And so we're able to do all sorts of things now. So for example, uh, for companies that put most of their uh, essential communication in our system, you can query it, you can ask a question, you can say, how many employees do we have? You can say, what was our QBR last month? You know, you can ask these questions and it'll actually give you an answer. And more importantly, it will give you where that answer came from. Um, and that's all automatic, right? If I send out a weekly sales update, a weekly marketing update, all of that content is inside of Axios HQ. Um, the other part is you tend to find that you reuse a lot of content, vision, mission, values, um, things related to D&I. There are a lot of things that you talk about as a company and you tend to talk about them often. And so being able to pull that content in and not have to rewrite it, maybe you're editing it and updating it, but not having to rewrite it from scratch is extremely important. Um, and then having the metrics around it. So I love this space. I gotta say, I do love SaaS. Um, you know, the difference between SaaS and, and media, media is, um, you know, has a lot of different stakeholders. You've got the audience, you've got the advertisers, you've got the, the editorial department, right? There's different, um, and, and each one has a slightly different need. And the, the way in which you win in media is understanding that overlap. Where does your audience, your advertiser, and your editorial come together? And if that is, uh, a, if, if you really understand that, you can make a media company work very well. At a SaaS company, it's all about the client, right? You're, you're creating a product to meet a need and everyone, sales, product, uh, engineering, Everyone is just trying to meet that client need because they know that if they meet that client need, they will have an incredible product that'll be worth a lot of money. And so you're not having to deal with multiple stakeholders. You're really you know, doing one thing and doing it very well. So, 
So that part is very exciting. And the generative AI stuff, I kind of think back to when, uh, in, in, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but in 1999, I was doing my MBA, and I felt extremely jealous of people who were at internet companies pioneering, right? Because you didn't know where it was going to go. You didn't know what was going to work. You didn't know, you know how it was going to turn out. That's where we are with generative AI. We have no idea two years from now what it's going to look like, how advanced it's going to be, or how it's going to impact the world that we live in. We know it's going to move quickly. And so um, we're in the center of that. We're, we're, we're using generative AI specifically for internal communication and to, to help companies. Um, because let's face it, most people have never written professionally, right? They're terrible communicators because no one ever took the time yes. to teach you. Uh, you know, I, I in my MBA program, did anyone ever teach me how to write an email to my boss or no. my team? No, they never teach you that stuff. And so uh, we tend to just vomit words. Like everyone does, like sits in front of a computer and just starts writing and it tends to be long, disorganized, repetitive. And so Axios HQ is software that helps you fix all of that, makes it much more efficient, makes it much shorter. Uh, and so that's the idea of it. So I'm so glad you said all of this, and it's a great segue into the 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 part of this that I wanted to talk about for generative AI, because obviously everyone's talking about it. I think everyone's almost sick of talking about it, but we have to talk about it because it is important. Um, and we won't spend too much time here, but I guess you know what you said earlier about the, how exciting it is to be part of this when it when it sort of first came out and to have a company that's building around this new technology that didn't exist before, just like in you know the beginning of the internet and the digital age and all that, but in that back in that time it was like there was this huge problem where a lot of companies were coming out with stuff that really wasn't useful and it was just they're calling it digital and it has a, a website and somehow that's you know that makes them unique and they're getting crazy valuations and whatever but then you had the dot-com bust and all the noise got canceled out and you could see sort of clearly what actually mattered and that obviously hasn't happened yet in generative ai but i'd be clear curious from your perspective you know what is what what parts of generative AI are actually unique and investable, and, and maybe in terms of Axios HQ or just in general versus just you know using Chat GBT for something that anybody can do, right? Any anybody yeah. can do that. You don't need a product for that. I mean, it's it's the similarities between uh, generative AI and the beginnings of the internet are you know unbelievable, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of startups right now. now it's, I don't think it's anyone that's just saying, you know. This is this is not this idea is not going to work, but I'm going to go you know try and raise money against it anyway. I think people just don't you just don't know all the ways in which it's going to work. And in fact, if you go back to '99, all the ideas that were put out there, eventually a lot of them did work. They were just too early, and I think you're going to see a lot of that as well, where um, people want to apply generative AI to some concept, but they're too early. It's it's not going to work now. And in a decade from now or in five years from now, someone else is going to do the exact same thing and it's going to work. And then we're going to be like, wait a second. I remember was there was my a idea 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, I, I totally I was uh, interning in a VC firm and I totally remember this. We invested in a company in New York that delivered anything you wanted in an hour. Right. And they had the equivalent of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, open cart and, you know, all these other companies that are like picking up you know, your items and delivering it. And, and, and uh, you know, they were convinced it was going to work and it did, but it took 20 years for it to work. Right. Um, and so you're going to see the same thing here. Um, I will say where um, generative AI is most helpful, right. It's definitely going to change the way in which people um, write 
code. And we're going to see a lot of that. So it so will impact every company in the sense that I think technology is going to move quicker and just be more efficient. Um, that's going to be good for everyone. But uh, where it gets put in, like for, for us, the reason it's super helpful is we were working on a communication software. And a big part of our communication software was how do we improve people's writing? And it's, and it's a perfect fit for that. So we're able, these things that we had in our heads of, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, query a database and find exactly what we were looking for, that would have been a little bit more difficult. Um, it could be done, but it would have been a lot more difficult. We were able to put that together within a few weeks, right? And so, you know, generative AI has helped us do something that, that would have taken months. Um, the downside to that is other people will be able to replicate those yeah. things pretty, pretty quickly. So you're going to have to think through, okay, I can do this quicker now, but so can everyone else. What's the moat that I can establish? What proprietary data do I have that no one else will have? And so in our case, having 500 clients writing in our system gives us a lot of proprietary information that's helping everyone, right? And so for the first time, there's never been an internal communication platform. So for the first time, you can actually see, well, what is a good all hands? What is a good DNI uh, update? What is a good sales update? I mean, think about it. Every organization on the planet writes a sales update. What should be in it? What's more effective? What should go first? Um, and what's a good open rate, right? Like how how interactive, how engaged should my audience be in this content? And so we are seeing that across, we anonymize it all, but we can see it all. And we take learnings from that and help everyone, right? So we help everyone improve their communication because uh, we can do that. And generative AI is gonna, is gonna help us do that more quickly. Um, but the key, if you're gonna use generative AI is what's the moat that you're gonna build that's unique to you because People are going to be able to replicate all of that uh, super, super quick. Um, so, you know, getting getting that sorted out is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, I'm curious how you feel about this. I know you're not necessarily building products around generative AI, but how you're if you're thinking about it or if you're thinking about not thinking about it on purpose um, or if, if you have any any thoughts there about how it impacts you in your in your industry. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think kind of everyone needs to be thinking about it. I think the reality is these are tools that everyone's going to have at their disposal. And the folks that figure out how to put them to the greatest use are the ones that are going to benefit uh, the most from them. And I, I think the part of what Roy said that to me is most key is sort of having a, you know, a training set, for lack of better word, you know, a, a corpus of data that's unique is a lot of what's going to help people use these tools to their greatest use. You know, you can put any question into chat GPT, but to get an insightful response or an interesting response, you need to sort of feed more information into the system. And so in, in our business, um, the, the corpus of data that we have is that's pretty unique is we probably run more, uh, you know, marketing efforts against ultra small audiences of very senior people folks in their orbit than just about any business. Uh, in the world. And so we're we're able over time to see what types of content do those people respond to, where can you reach them, et cetera. And you can imagine a world in which, you know, for our clients, you could use generative AI to take all that massive data that we have and give them really good insights about 
if you're trying to get the attention of a, of a senator, or you're trying to get uh, the attention of a CEO, what's the right type of content? What's the right way to talk about uh, an issue in order to capture that type of person's uh, attention? And so, you know, I, I really don't think it's it's all that different from what, it, what it's taken to build a good business for a long time, which is you need to build a defensible moat, an interesting uh, you know, piece of information and, and ultimately a flywheel that you can capitalize on as your business gets larger and larger. This is just a, a new tool to uh, sort of pour fuel onto that, uh, that flywheel that businesses have had to build for a long time. Uh, and, and so I, I think everyone needs to be thinking about how to, how to build their advantage in this space. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think when you're building around a niche, niche content or very elite um, subset of people that you're trying to message to, you know, not a lot of people have that data. And, and, you know, generative AI doesn't have that data unless you give it to them. So only the companies and the, and the organizations that have it are going to be able to create, to, to, to take advantage of it, really. Yep. Um, and right. so I think that's just a really good point. Um, and, and I'm curious if either of you are seeing, um, maybe especially you, Roy, just interesting consumer behavior trends that um, are showing up now in how people are using your product and how people are responding to, to comms, especially if you're leveraging the generative AI. I Consumer, no, because you know this is a business tool, so it's a you know uh, it's being used for employee communication, and the people who are using it are using it in a, in a business context. Um, but they love the generative AI features, right? People love anything that's going to make their life easier, and so the the thing that we've been working on lately is is auto completing content. So as you start writing, um, we know what you've written before to the point you made earlier. Um, we have the context, right? We know what type of update you're doing. So you're doing a sales update. We know the updates that you've written before. We know the style in which you write. And so when we are auto-completing, it's really specific to you based on what you've done before. Um, and so that almost seems like magic writing uh, to people, which is which is great. Um, and so that's that's the part that I think people react to the most is they're like, wow, like this really sounds like my voice and it's what I would have written um, you know, I can do some minor editing and send it out much quicker than I than I otherwise would. I think that's going to go a really long way in the future. I think we're going to be able to get to a point where you are the editor, not the writer, and that the machine is the writer. Um, and I think before generative AI, I don't think anyone would have ever thought that. I think we would have thought the machine will always be really good at editing, like a spell check, um, but actually writing content would be a human uh, thing. Uh, now it's definitely going to be the other way around. Like we will, we will be the editors, and the computers will be the writers. Do you think that that's going to completely disrupt the comms world? Because I feel like there's a lot of writers, even in my own company. Right when I have my own employees put things together for me, just having them do that drafting process for a project or a report is, you know, it saves me half the time. I still have to edit it, but I feel like now that's no longer needed. Right. And I think that's a big, big piece of what a lot of comms companies do, really. Yeah. Look, uh, this world is going to change and it's going to change very rapidly. And I don't think anyone knows exactly how it's going to play out. But there are, um, you know, there are certain roles that are going to have to change. Right. So if you're doing, um, you know, I have a friend who does document review for, uh, you know, law firms, like that job is going away, right? Um, you know, there, there are certain things that a computer is just going to be able to do much, much quicker. And, you know, computers don't sleep, they don't take breaks, and, you know, they can, they can process very quickly. So you don't um, even have to pay them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're paying someone for it. You're paying someone. 
but but there is um, you know there's a lot of uh, human interaction that still has to take place. For example, at Access HQ, nothing is sent automatically, right? We we would expect you to want to edit and review that information so we can make it easier. But we're never we're never going to be you know just sending out updates automatically without a human reviewing it. So um, you know there's always going to be that need. But the creation of content will become much, much easier. And that's across the board that's going to happen, right? It's going to radically change a lot of industries because generative AI uh, is just going to create a lot of content. It's also, by the way, going to create a lot of problems. Um, And uh, that's where, you know, Matt, both of our companies, Axios Media and and Apple Card are going to do very well from this because there's going to be so much more noise in the system. That's right. Yep. Breaking through the noise, you know, so the way that Axios Media, you know, is able to reach um, policymakers, able to reach influencers is going to be very, very valuable. Uh, and the way that your technology helps you find those people and reach those people is going to be very valuable because the amount of content created is about to double or triple, right? And we already, we're already overwhelmed, by the way. I mean, all of us get probably 300 emails a day, text messages, Slack messages, all the rest of it. But imagine now every company can just with a few clicks create content and send it out to you. So, you know, if we think our inboxes are full now, wait, wait, wait till six months from now, um, you know, it's, it's going to be bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And the way I think about it is, you know, it's all kind of about how you make someone pause, right? If they're flooded with information, what can make them stop and actually consume what you're trying to put in front of them? And at least to my mind, there, there are two things. One is content, right? And that's why what Axios HQ is doing is really important is because I want my employees to stop and read my updates, not glaze <laughs> over them or ignore them or roll their eyes at them. And same thing on the Axios side. Um, you know, we know from our business that when uh, you know, our clients can put any piece of content in front of someone. The things that make them stop are things that are credible <laughs> or interesting. And uh, an outlet like Axios is capable of delivering that in a way that nothing that anyone writes in-house at a company can possibly achieve. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, that's one element of it is what are you putting in front of them and how does it make them stop? And the other thing is like, who's the messenger, right? It's like people consume information very differently when it comes from someone they trust, whether that's a news outlet or that's a friend or a family member versus when they see it in a, in a, in a banner ad. And so, you know, I think sort of in the advertising world, that's sort of what I see going away is, you know, there was a, this, this sort of long history through the rise of Facebook where, you know, it was really just a question of optimizing colors and words and whatever, and, and you could get a certain conversion rate you want. You know, I, I don't think that's good enough anymore. I think people are flooded by way too much stuff that um, the amount that, you know, we're seeing this across a lot of companies that you can actually get from a performance channel where it's all about sort of clicking to convert is is decreasing. Many businesses who relied on that as a conversion channel are really in, in trouble and they're looking for ways to build uh, a deeper relationship with their audience that they're, they're not going to get through that sort of clickbait. And so I think like content messenger is really the thing I, I think a lot about. Uh, it makes advertising so, so much harder. And that's why I think about what you're doing, Matt, and, and what you guys have built as being sort of like just incredibly valuable relative to 
a lot of the ways over the past 10 years that people have been able to make make money or build businesses in the advertising space. Um, and speaking of that, Matt, I want to talk a few minutes about just regulation and the regulatory policy that has come into place impacting privacy and things like that, and how, how you're viewing that impacting um, your space, your company, um, and the future of the industry as a whole. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, anyone that's doing good work in this space recognizes that like privacy needs to be like at the center of anything that you do from a, um, from a communication uh, standpoint. And so, you know, I, I think there's some analogies to crypto where it's sort of like, you know, is all crypto bad? No, but there are, there are not like super clear, you know, rules of the road in, in certain elements of, of the world. So there, there are certain things people have been doing in advertising for a long time uh, that, you know, rely on data that consumers don't expect to be used in the way that it's being used. And then there are people that have been super conscious about uh, only using information that's sort of like freely available, that's, you know, public, that people put sort of out, out in the world. And so, you know, I certainly know for our business, that's always sort of been at, at the core of how we've thought about uh, the work that we do. But I think, you know, as it, I think will be for crypto, the, the same is true in the advertising world, you know, the folks that uh, have operated with that mentality are going to be around for a very long time. And it's ultimately going to be a very good thing for, for marketing that there are uh, sort, sort of clearer guidelines in, in play there as, as I think it will be probably in like the blockchain and crypto world as well. Do you think there's other business models that will crop up? I guess I'll ask you both this um, as a result of these policy changes and technology changes that we've just been talking about. I mean, they're gonna, they're, there's going to have to be, but I think it's going to take a while, right? The, the, these things, um, you know, there's unclear um, rules around how you use other people's content to train the models. Yeah. And I think that's the one that as a media company, I'm sort of most fixated on for Axios Media. Um, how do you, uh, if, if content is being trained on, if models are being trained on your content, but you don't have a way to get paid on that, that that could be very detrimental, right? I think SEO and search is about to change radically because if um, you can get an answer from generative AI, then you don't need to go to wherever that content sat before it became an answer. Um, that's very detrimental to you know someone generating content, and that could mean that eventually there's a lot less content, right? How do you develop? You know, local news already has a really big problem. Um, how do you um, get answers to questions about local news if you don't have a local news outlet? Well, then generative AI is not going to be helpful. So you know, th these are these are issues that have happened every time. You know, when Facebook came along, we had that issue. When Google came along, we had that issue on the media side. It's no different now that generative AI is here, um, trying to think ahead and trying to figure out, okay, is there a way to um, provide back money to people who are creating content from which that data came from? That's going to be a, that, that there may be regulation around that. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I, I, that's, I'm very curious to see how that plays out because I think it's a huge issue. I mean, we're already seeing it. Even when we write our own content, it's like it came from somewhere. We pulled it from something else at some point. You know, we may have researched the topic specifically and knew what we wanted to talk about, but ultimately a lot of the stuff is coming from someplace else. And, um, you know, so if, if you're a big brand or a big media company and you get the eyeballs and people are going to open it and trust your email, then you're the one going to get all the money and credit for that, even if it wasn't yours to begin with. 
so anyway, I just think that's super interesting. Matt, anything on your end, like new business model cropping up wise? I, th you know, I'm sure there'll be plenty of new businesses. I mean, the, the thing I, I've sort of noticed the most though, is just like what people are going to have to be placing a premium on. I mean, I think in the sort of publisher world, I, I think there's going to be like a huge, huge premium uh, on sites that like know their, uh, know their customers, know their readers, know their audience, you know, the, the platforms that um, can resolve who's seeing a piece of content on their platform back to an email address that they created an account with, et cetera. There's, there's going to be a lot of premium put on that versus a world in which, you know, there were cookies and, you know, uh, you know, you could kind of track people across websites, you know, there, there's a huge push, uh, you know, in that world to try to draw a connection between who's on my website uh, and, and sort of resolving that back to an identity because obviously, um, you know, websites where you know that they're super valuable people spending time there, like in Axios, um, are going to be worth a lot more than places where I have no idea who's there. I, I can't sort of track that anymore. And uh, that's going to become much more of a problem over the next uh, couple of years. And you're seeing a lot of publishers and other platforms trying to catch up with that. Well, we're going to move into the sort of final thoughts, tips and advice section of the podcast with with the two of you. Um, so, Roy, I'm going to ask you a very basic, silly question that I know you've been asked 80 billion times, but you are so good at comms, right? Like you've been doing it for years and years and built companies around it. And and you just it's sort of almost like a natural thing for you. But to your point, like nobody really teaches you that in the beginning and generative AI did not exist when you started out. So how do you teach someone to get better at it? Well, we have a book uh, it's Smart Brevity. Right? <laughs> it's a bestseller on the Wall Street Journal list. Uh, it's sold 70,000 copies already. Uh, I've read it. I love it's a great book. It's, so. It is a great book. Um, you know, it's it, it does extremely well on on Amazon. And I think it's because it's the first time where someone's given you really practical advice on how you can make your communication more efficient. But to just share some of the tips and tricks that are in the book, uh, and the book is very, very short for anyone listening. It's called Smart Brevity, so it better be short, right? It'll, it'll literally take you uh, about an hour to read, which is, which is good. Um, so um, look, the first thing is when you're thinking about writing, uh, a very good tip is read it out loud. People tend to write words that they would never say. Uh, so the word that comes to mind very often is aforementioned, right? You, you see that word written uh, in communication. But we wouldn't, like, if I said aforementioned today, like, you would have been like, what? We're, we're literally <laughs> laughing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so weird. Uh, there's so many words like that that you would write, but you would never say. And so read it out loud. Does it make sense? Is it is it how you and I would talk? And the best communication is kind of like this call, um, but think of it like you're grabbing coffee with someone and it's just you and an individual. The other tip that we give is don't think of the audience as this mass. Like actually picture someone specifically, um, ideally even like print out their picture, put it next to your computer, because then you tend to, one, the audience first. You're thinking about them so you're thinking about their time. You're thinking about how busy they are. So you want to be efficient in your communication. You're reading it out loud. You're like, oh, I would never say that to that person in real life. Um, 
And so the way in which your your writing changes. So those are just a couple of tips that I think making makes writing more efficient. If you're a boss or an employer and you have employees and you really want them to to develop these skills, other than reading that book, is there any other way for them to develop it besides just practicing it in real life or you spending time one on one teaching them? I mean. Uh, you know, you've got you've got to practice it, right? You, so, so no one's taught this to you. So, you either have to get the book, or you have to do training, or you have to to find some way to get the knowledge that's gonna, you know, allow you to know what to do. Um, because it's not if it was innate, we would all do it, right? It's 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 not innate. Uh, we tend to be uh, verbose uh, when we communicate. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then for this is for both of you. We sort of touched on this before, but I'm thinking about uh, founders raising money right now, investors investing also. Like Roy, you're you're also an investor, so I, I know you invest in obviously a lot of the stuff the case Street invests in across regulated markets, um, which have a lot of interesting connections to each other. And um, I'm just I'm just curious if there's any thoughts or advice out there for other early stage investors when they're thinking about investing in deals uh, in the space right now in the comms world or otherwise. Um, or other thoughts for founders in general who are trying to build businesses in this in entirely different world that we're in. It seems like it's it's changed every two years. It was like a wild market, then it was a pandemic market. Now it's a it's a sort of like a recession market, um, and 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 it's really important, I think, to just to to share what you guys are doing and what advice you have for. Uh, for other founders out there. Well, I look as, for an investor. I'd say this is a great time to invest in companies. <laughs> you're going to get a good good deal, right? Um, so, you know, I would I would be I would look very carefully, and make sure you're investing in a in a good company, but you're going to get a good valuation, um, and you're you're you know you're going to get good terms. Um, if you're a founder, if you have the optionality to bootstrap, you should bootstrap. If you have a year of runway, like you, you've got to start thinking about raising. If you have two years of runway, that's that's good. You've, you've planned ahead and you can sort of, um, you know, skate by for a while um, and just, you know, lower your burn maybe to, to give yourself a little longer because the market, the market is not great. Um, but, you know, generative AI is going to make, you know, most, most startups are technology-based, right? It's going to make your technology costs go down over time. We don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but you already have co-pilot, you already have people writing code with um, generative AI. And so, you know, I was told by a few people who kind of really know the space that it's gonna get at least 50% more efficient by the end of the year. So so imagine like, it's like having double the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be investing, right? And I, I will also just add, um, you know, as an investor, I think for founders, for us, what will make it easier for you to cut through the noise and you know it's, it's almost like a comms thing but just have your materials together and clean and easy for an investor to read and understand quickly there's nothing that will will cut you through the noise faster than than doing that and i think a lot of founders are still of this mindset of this like visionary you know uh you don't need to look at any of the our materials and and you're just going to invest because the round's closing or whatever and that's not really the case anymore it was never the case for us at k street we never invested like that in the first place but um that was the environment before and it just it no longer is so i think it's important for founders to just spend a little bit more time on that and it will help it will help them a lot uh, but matt what about you having gone through your recent yeah 
I mean, look, I, and obviously I'm biased. I mean, I started off by saying we, 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 we bootstrap, but you know, I, I do think there's sort of been this reflexive mindset and uh, for a lot of founders that, that you need to raise money and you, you know, can't run a business unless you, you know, raise tens and tens of millions of dollars of capital. And, and at least for me, I think most people are surprised by what they can do with less resources than they initially uh, thought. And, and I think, um, you know, so, sort of zero based budgeting in a, in a business is a, is, is a good thing of just trying to understand, like, you know, if I, if I were to really think about um, what do I really need to get uh, to the next step or to Roy's point to stay alive? Um, you know, it, it's very often, I think, less than many people think. And I think, you know, whatever you can do to um, just get to a path where you don't need the capital to stay alive, it's very freeing to be in a position where, um, regardless of where the market swings, you, you know, your company's future is not sort of hanging in the balance. So, you know, that that's the first thing I'd say is, is to whatever extent you can figure that out. And you might be surprised uh, at the degree to which um, there is a path for you to uh, to get there. I, I think that's um, a really, really valuable um, exercise. But also, like, when you raise money, like, have a purpose for raising the money. It's not just because you need a seed or because you need an A. Like the rounds aren't what make your company successful. It's building a business at the end of the day. And I think the folks that do the most with the capital they raise are the ones who prior to receiving the capital have a very clear understanding of why they're raising, where they're going to deploy that capital and how doing so is going to get them to a place either where they're you know, valued in a dramatically different place they couldn't get to organically or, or get them to that place of freedom where they're not relying on the capital, even in down market cycles in order to uh, survive. So those, those would probably be my, my two messages. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, any, any other final thoughts? No, just excited to have done this. Um, looking forward to uh, spending more time uh, with you at K Street and uh, good luck to everyone who's out there. Yeah, thank you guys so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. This was a great well, thanks episode. Thanks everybody. I, I know, Pleasure. I know that everyone will enjoy it. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.